I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. Today's sponsor insight is from MFS, the $530 billion asset manager founded in 1924 and credited with creating the first mutual fund. My guest is Carol Jeremiah, president and head of Global Distribution, where she oversees the firm's worldwide client-facing efforts and helps drive MFS's long-term corporate strategy. In her 37 years at MFS, Carol has served as co-head of Global Distribution, president of the firm's institutional business, and president of MFS Retirement Services. Our conversation covers Carol's early years at MFS, path to her current role, the firm's 100-year history, and its culture. We dive into the firm's research process, team structure, and strategic evolution, and then turn to what Carol is hearing from investors, opportunities and risks, ESG, and driving change in the industry. Please enjoy my conversation with Carol Jeremiah. Carol, great to see you. Yeah, nice to see you too. Well, why don't we start with taking me all the way back to your journey within MFS? Well, I started literally right out of school, and it was a job I had seen in the newspaper. (laughs) But really, it actually wasn't specifically to go to Massachusetts Financial Services. It was through a recruiting firm. And so I had to respond to the ad through the recruiting firm. And the reason I even tell that piece of it is because the woman who I met with and who ran the firm herself was working with MFS and places like Bain and and other financial organizations in Boston. And I came in with a resume that just had all fashion and retail experience in New York City. (laughs) So she sort of said, okay, this this screams retail. We're going to change this around a little bit and asked me basically if I could type and (laughs) some really basic entry-level things. And she sent me for an interview at MFS. And I remember very distinctly coming back and she said, so what did you think? And I said, the people at Massachusetts Financial Services were so so nice. They were incredibly friendly. I would love to work there. And that was it. And within a day, she said, you have the job. And that was November 13th of 1984. And I really started at an entry-level position more on the phones and more sort of doing whatever they needed me to do. I run to the mailroom. And at the time, we had $5.8 billion under management with about 340 people. And a big part of the story, too, is that early entry was not just in the interview of meeting somebody that was so just kind, was that I found that to be very consistent across the firm with how people interacted with each other, how I was treated as just sort of a kid coming in. But I do remember meeting, it was an orientation meeting with one of the senior heads of the firm at the time. He was very, very explicit and said, you are going to hear a lot about MFS and you're going to learn a lot in the next month, but there's one thing you can never, ever forget as long as you work here. And he said, we do right by the shareholder. And I don't know what it was, but that meant a lot to me. 
it was this idea that no matter what, this place was going to do the right thing. In time, through all the different positions I had at the firm, quite frankly, through thick and thin, I really watched the consistency of the decision-making and that being passed on to me about putting clients first. We all say that a lot today, but it's very, very gray in this business. It's not black and white like you would think. It really isn't. And so each of those decisions, whether they're small or they're big, sort of mount up to, again, whether you're doing the next right thing. Are you really focused on the end investor? Are you really making a decision that's more about your business success or, again, clients? And that just resonated with me tremendously from the very get-go. Was there an example that vividly sticks in your mind of a decision that was putting the client first where it just wasn't so obvious that that was the right thing to do? Well, I think probably the biggest one was about almost 20 years ago, and I was taking over the institutional business, and so I had a lot to learn. And you're dealing with large institutions all over the world, but we made the decision to close a a product that was receiving lots of flow. And I, at the time, was running the business, and it was about building the business and growing the business and really getting presence and scale all over the world. And the portfolio management team and our management team says, we're going to close the product. And to me, that was the greatest thing we did. I knew it was going to shut off the spigot. I knew it was going to slow down growth overnight. But I was so proud about translating why we were doing that. Because there was no other reason we were doing that is just to protect the performance of the existing shareholders. And it's a simple one, but boy, to be behind tough decisions and then be able to explain that to clients, I think only reinforced your best example of how you're putting them first. So let's circle back to you and your path from those early years to where you're sitting today. Sure. So it was on the phones. It was learning a lot. I got to be honest, I really didn't know what a mutual fund was when I started. (laughs) And at the time, we were a U.S. mutual fund organization that was known to have invented the mutual fund in 1924. And so it was really working specifically through advisors throughout the country, covering a territory. And interesting enough, part of that journey was covering the Midwest. There was a lot of retirement plan business done in that territory, specifically 403B plans. So it was on universities, nonprofits, hospitals, and I loved that idea that it was starting to make bigger connections for me, that we weren't just selling mutual funds, that we were managing other people's money, and we were helping people retire. And we were helping teachers and nurses and doctors retire. Like there was early connection for me. We talk about purpose all the time these days, but it was very motivating to me because I had to become an expert In 403B plans, there were a lot of complications that nobody wanted to touch 403Bs on the desk. Nobody wanted to talk about them or do the exclusion allowance calculator. And I just thought, oh, I'll do it. So I became the 403B queen where all the questions came to me in terms of figuring out that. And that just put me into the journey of my next stop, which was moving over to the retirement services part of the business very focused on ERISA plans. It was the beginning of the 401k. And so I made this move from being on this, what was the early sales desk and supporting the field 
to a different business of the company around ERISA and retirement plans. And that was just a whole nother level of complexity. And then soon enough, it became a big strategic decision at the firm of whether we were going to get into the 401k business in a more meaningful way and whether we would build a much bigger business around that. I was tapped to join this new team and to be one of the first pension wholesalers at MFS, helping out the advisor community understand that here's a really important aspect in a segment of the market that's going to grow and why it's important to participate. So I joined that and just it was the greatest job I could have ever had. You know, I was out in the field, I was meeting with companies all throughout New England, talking to them about changing their plans, growing it, evolving it. And then as we built that business, it got bigger and bigger. And I became uh, head of the president of the retirement services company. I ran that business for a while. And they asked me to come over to the institutional business, which was very similar in a way because I had been calling on companies and CIOs and head of HR. But the institutional business was away from the mutual fund and it was much more to large institutions and selling separately, managed accounts, servicing products, marketing, all of it. And I stepped into the institutional business and had to learn a lot. We were growing our non-US presence at the time. So I uh, step into that whole world of global overnight, institutional market and global, and then took all that on for a long period of time, built the business throughout the whole world and every major developing market built the teams around the world, and then moved into co-leading distribution with a partner of mine that was on the retail side, and I was institutional, and then evolving that to president of the firm and head of global distribution. So along the way, there's a lot of skill sets that there's the sort of direct sales, there's running a region, there's becoming a knowledgeable expert in an area, then running a bigger group, and then running kind of global groups. I'd love to hear what you think were the critical skills that you learned along the way that allowed you to continue to rise through the ranks. Yeah. I many times say that I got a lot of Fs early on. As I described earlier, I really actually always love what I do. Every position that I was put in, I just, I cannot tell you how much I enjoyed what I was doing. It also allowed me to have a voice and grow an opinion. And I learned, fortunately, by some really good mentors about making sure that I check my motive. And that motive is, is this about you? And like one of those real aha moments was understanding how I was interfacing and really close to the client and spent a lot of time, whether it was bringing in business, servicing, and when we had trouble, it was me coming back and translating, like, how could this go wrong? We got to do it better, you know, standards up to here. And I really learned pretty quickly that I thought it was my client. And it wasn't my client at all. It was our client. And the minute that mindset, both not only just in my head, but my heart really changed to realize, you know what, this is their client too whether that was legal, compliance, operations. And I had spent time enough on the operations side to know how hard it was 
and how hard it is to get everything perfect and right. And so it really was a transformation for me to understand if I could bring them closer to the client, they're going to see what I can see, and they're going to move mountains. They're going to move mountains like I want to move mountains. So that real career mental adjustment to say the importance of one is so much more important than just me. And I started to see leverage in that in almost everything I did going forward. The more I brought people to what I could see, they could actually do it better than I could. For a firm like MFS, now coming up on 100 years old, I'd love to hear your perspective on what it takes to end up in a position where there's been such a storied and long-tenured history of an asset management firm. Yeah, I mean, I think there's so much power in that history because what it says to me is that you have been able to change. It says nothing about being old, stodgy, conservative, traditional, can't get out of comfort zones. It talks about that we have constantly strived to be fit for purpose, to be focused on something greater than ourselves, and to have that culture that's been ingrained and passed on. That's one of the most important things in celebrating 100 years is not just, wow, not many firms survive 100 years. And the things that it takes to do that and be able to pass that on so that, again, the culture evolves, we change, we know that our customer is going to change. We are not afraid to change. We're not afraid to transform. And the reason is is because I think we, we know instinctively that if we do it together, we're going to figure out the next place to go. There's always this tension in asset management between espousing what it is you're going to do in your products and then that flexibility to change while the clients sort of have comfort that you're still maintaining your area of expertise. I'd love to hear more about what that ethos is in terms of the products at MFS that people buy into that still allows that change to happen. Yeah, that's such a deep question because that gets to the difference of client pleasing versus client aligning. When you're in a business of being a steward of other people's capital or you know, you're a fiduciary of somebody else's retirement account, the importance of alignment versus client pleasing. This is where things have gotten really messy and muddy and confused because what we had to do, and we did some deep thinking about this about 10 years ago, which was, you know, as the world is changing in the strategic response to passive and active and and you know, who's your customer and and what is your why and what is your purpose and can you explain it? We did a lot of self-reflection in that. And one of the exercises we went through to get to exactly what you're talking about is, first of all, who's our customer? And you would be amazed to say, well, geez, our customer is this. There was a lot of debate and argument in terms of who our customer was. And what we landed on is we've got two customers, because we're a B2B, but here's how it goes down. We manage money, the portfolios we are managing for, and how we put those portfolios together, and our long-term horizon that we depend on in managing money is for the end investor. We do not manage money for the intermediary. However, the intermediary, we believe in advice so much that we do not sell our products directly to the public. 
So they're both important customers. But in today's world, with so much maturity of the business, we have had to stand clear and be more clear about who we're managing money for. It's not the intermediary. It's the end investor. So that if I come back to that, then it really comes back to our sole core purpose of why MFS exists. It is to create value responsibly, to put other people's money to work responsibly. And you know, a lot of people in today's world says, oh, that sounds like it's an ESG pitch or a sustainability pitch. It's like, no, it's not. <laughs> Putting somebody else's capital to work responsibly, yes, means that we're going to put your money to work. We're going to manage risk. We're going to look for the best businesses in the world to understand what we own on your behalf and to make sure we have conviction in those businesses that we're owning with your money. And that essentially that's how we build our portfolios from a bottom up. But the other element in understanding that the end investor is who we manage money for is being really clear in the marketplace, even though people don't necessarily agree with this all the time, is we don't believe in short-termism. We do not believe that we exist to generate alpha over short measurement periods like one, three, and five. Our goal is to outperform over a full market cycle. And we think it's really important to define what a full market cycle is and to understand when we say we're long-term, we can prove it. And in fact, we want to prove it because we think that's actually our distinct advantage of putting your money to work responsibly. When you're talking to that one client that's the set of intermediaries, how do you describe what being long-term means for you? It comes in the whole package. You can't just be long-term in your portfolios. It's how you manage the business. It's how you manage your talent. Like when we hire people, we think about, we want you, what MFS stands for is not just simply Massachusetts Financial Services, but my final stop. We want people here for the long haul because we think actually that's the way to run the business the best and to develop investment excellence with everybody that we bring onto the team. But when we have to translate what long-term means is we really do spend more and more time, especially today, what a full market cycle is. And most people know it, but the measurements that the industry anchors around are usually half a full market cycle. Anywhere between seven and 10 years is a full market cycle. So if you're really gonna hold us accountable against beating a benchmark, that actually, by the way, is not a fiduciary and doesn't care what you own or doesn't care the price you pay, that's what you hire us to do. And so in order for us to really commit the capital long enough for the value to be created, we see that happening over a full market cycle. And that's why we're very, very clear about that. Unfortunately, I think the pressure in the industry has bred a lot of short-termism. And right now, and in the past five to 10 years, part of our distinctive message in the market is the fact that when you even look at the average holding of a stock inside our portfolios, it's three to four times the industry average. So when I say we want to prove to our clients and investors, when we say we're long-term, we're not just long-term washing. We actually can really prove that we're committing your capital over long periods of time. We have a lot of conviction in buying the companies and investing in the companies because we do so much bottom-up fundamental research 
to know what we own. And we think that's where really the sustainable wealth is built. I'd love to hear in this moniker of creating value responsibly to break that up into creating value and then we could talk about responsibly. On the creating value side, you know, you've discussed duration, you just touched a little bit on fundamental research. What is the ethos of MFS in terms of the research process and the set of beliefs that lead to long-term outperformance? Yeah, it all comes down to the idea that we know what we own with other people's money. So if you kind of back that up and sort of pull that apart, first you have to have a, you really have to have invested in a global research platform that has people all over the world based in markets that can see things you couldn't see from another office or you couldn't necessarily know from another location. Then what you have to do is ensure that those investors around the world are operating as one team that there is a tremendous amount of trust, collaboration, teamwork. We all talk about collaboration and teamwork a lot in the industry. You have to make that the number one priority in managing the people. That if it's about you, you're in the wrong place. This has to be about the one team, the whole, about the client, about the idea that we are getting to the best investment idea for our clients' portfolios. And in order to do that, we think we need diverse thinking from all regions in the world to compare and contrast and understand the data and really beat up and debate the scenarios of the future of forecasting what's going to happen with any of these businesses, but also to understand them intensely well at every single level you can imagine. And that's where we build our conviction in that hub of that global research team the other aspect that we learned, and we did this years ago, is realizing that we are both an equity and a fixed income manager. And so we realized in understanding a company, to understand the full capital market structure of that company was super important. Why not bring the teams together, the credit analyst and the equity analyst, onto one team, into those teams around the world, so that they operate as a whole? And that, again, has been a distinguishing difference that we've done long ago. It was the greatest differentiator for us in the global financial crisis. We could see our fixed income team knew and understood and started to understand the issues, especially in the financial sector, and really said, there's a lot of stuff here we can't value. And the equity analyst said, huh, and woke up to that information. And putting that together actually allowed us to not own a lot of the things that would have had a huge impact negatively on the portfolio. So it's coming from that research process of team and the sector teams that we have built around the world, the regional teams, and then that cross-collaboration. So in this global research effort cross-sector, what are the structures in place in the firms to bring together the collaboration and teamwork into practice? Because it's one thing to say we're going to collaborate. It's another thing when you have people in different time zones and, and covering different things and different objectives. What are the structures of the firm that make that work? Well, first of all, besides it being you know a very strong philosophical driver, it's been fascinating for me to watch because I've been able to watch it is just to see the extension of a culture going global. And obviously, we have our own local cultures and all our different offices, for sure. 
But the fact that you can really unite on a culture globally is impressive to me. And I've watched it be built and I've watched it happen. And one of the things though, the first driver is to ensure that we incent the behavior. So we changed compensation decades ago, first and foremost, to say that we are a team and that's the way we're going to incent people to operate. So you're not just gonna get paid on your results. That's gonna be a huge factor for sure, but there's gonna be a very large, at least a third of your compensation that is centered around how well you work on the team, how much you share information, how much you seek out information, how much collaboration you do, you do have, how much you participate in research meetings. And then we have a 360 peer review process twice a year. And so that's not just the nicest investor that gets great scores. It really isn't. It's deeply ingrained in the teams in terms of who's operating the best in terms of that cross-team collaboration and adding the most value and impact. So the incentives are there, the philosophy's there. And then certainly we have put a lot of aspects into not only technology to ensure that the communication globally, virtually has been in place. And if, in fact, it's one of the big reasons we moved our home office down the street because we literally rewired the whole building to become much more efficient in terms of the virtual world way before COVID, I might add. But then we also bring people together constantly. We have what's called roundtables where we will bring the teams together, all members of the teams around the world together in person. And it's twice a year and it's one of the most important ways people actually build trust because it's so much more than just talking about portfolios or risk or researching companies. I mean, there's a lot of that dialogue, but it's also to understand each other individually, understand our families, understand what we do, understand where we're from, bring all the diverse elements to this team and to build that trust so that when you are back in your office, and you're looking for information or you want to have a debate or you want to look at something deeper, you don't hesitate to make the phone calls. You know each other. So you've spent so long out talking to your clients. And we're, let's just say, living in interesting times. I'd love to hear what you're hearing from those conversations about the state of the world and how it affects your business. There's no question, and I've been around, I literally have been around the world in the past 90 days. And obviously everybody's talking about how much confusion they're feeling, the pressure of what is happening, the war in Ukraine, the impacts even for the Europeans, I heard loud and clear. And our clients over the past 10 to 15 years, their jobs have gotten harder and harder. And as we talk to them about this idea that Today, although that's starting to change as interest rates are rising, for the past 30 years, investors have been taking five times the amount of risk to get the same amount of return that they did 30 years ago. Like, you have to allocate to a much riskier, much more complex portfolio than you ever did 10, 20, 30 years ago. And so the position that clients have been in is not only that those asset allocation decisions, it's then down deeply into the pockets of security selection. So what I think we bring to the table in the conversation is not only do we 
hopefully help our clients realize that you got to focus on what you can control. We can talk endlessly about interest rates and inflation and geopolitical risks and wars and elections. And it's not that those aren't inputs. Don't get me wrong. But you also have to focus on what you can control. And so we pass on exactly how we do that in that research process, in understanding companies so well, getting really involved in long-term strategies of the companies we own, asking them questions about how they're going to transition their business around sustainability. Like these are all things we can, we can have conversations with companies about. It's also helping our clients understand how long-term and the power of time is the best way to manage risk. The institutional investor understands that. The problem is they're under so much pressure from boards and from their public entities that moving away from short-termism is a hard fight. But we're standing there with them saying it is the fight that we all have to have because it is really, truly the best way to manage risk. For a long time, the equities and fixed income products that you offered have just had a terrific run in spite of people thinking, well, equities are overvalued or interest rates have to go up. Now we're seeing maybe the beginning or certainly seeing a change in the pricing of those securities. How have you thought about the evolution of your business potentially beyond the traditional equity and fixed income products? Yeah. I mean, I think what we do gets more valuable. I think what we're seeing today is that obsessive growth at any cost is over. I think we're seeing the limitations of passive capital. I think we're seeing the limitations of short-term alpha. I think we're going to start to desperately realize how important liquidity is. And so when you come back to then looking at our business and what we do, and when I say, you know, we create value responsibly, investors now want to know that you know what you own. They want to know that you're going to engage with the companies in a way to help them transform, whether that's cybersecurity, environment, workforce equality, whatever it might be, all of these new demands makes what we do as a long-term active manager more and more valuable. Because as you really think about how capital is going to be allocated in the future, it's changing. It's changing as we speak right now. And to me, that's actually what makes it the most exciting. And then as we think about it as us running our business is not only making sure that we don't spread ourselves too thin or that we're not trying to chase the, the newest widget. I mean, I think we've done that really well, but that just like evolving our investment platform over the hundred years, we're continuing to evolve how we're going to get to the best investment ideas in more and different ways, whether that's new levels of technology and data, new ways to interface with each other. How do you do the hybrid world? The good news for us, we've been working on a virtual global platform for a long, long time. COVID taught us some pretty cool new things that we're putting to work. I also think on the other side of the industry and the business is that this idea of just making money on risk exposure as an investment idea is becoming very, very limiting. And the reason it's limiting, it might still be a way to allocate risk and make a buck, but where it's limiting is it actually isn't allocating capital well in the entire ecosystem of our economies and our capital markets. And that's what is happening is people are starting to recognize 
the negative externalities of this. And so how does that start to transform? And how do you make sure that your business is fit for purpose as these transformational things happen? And I'll say the same thing about the workforce and what you have to do to change there, about how you package your products and price them and the incentives that will drive you in the future, and then how you have engagement with clients and how that will change as well. What are some of the ways on those latter two points on the packaging product and pricing and engagement with clients that you see evolving so that you can address the changing needs of the industry? Yeah, we've been investing in a lot of new dynamics of the engagement with clients and really trying to understand deeply how they want to engage and what do they need. Somebody said, the fundamental truth about business is that your customers will always change. The question you need to ask yourself is, what do you want your customers to become? And so when we ask that to ourselves is we want to help them become better investors. We want to help them become better advisors. And so as we step into answering that question, it's how do we get them the best information, the best knowledge, the best insights to understand not only the decisions they have to make in portfolio allocation, but also to understand what we're doing on their behalf. And so bringing them closer and closer to our process and our partnership, and so that that transparency is there in their ability to not only understand what we own on their behalf and their client's behalf, but then also be able to align in understanding why we're taking a long-term view. And so whether it's showing up with content that helps tell that story, whether it's digital content, whether it's interaction on the website and what they're looking for, whether it's personalization of the things that they're worried about and being able to respond to where they're at, it's developing all of that as a new engagement model versus sort of in the old days of being able to depend on building relationships in person and in ways that have matured tremendously going forward. The pricing and packaging side, it's the same thing with vehicles. People hire us for our, our investment excellence and our research and our capability of driving long-term results. And so we want to make sure that we have the most efficient vehicles, either separate accounts, still mutual funds. We have looked a lot at active ETFs as an example, but here's the problem with ETFs. You can't close the products. How do you manage capacity and how do you protect performance as an active manager? That is the sole reason we have not offered an active ETF. We want to make sure it's good for the end investor. We'd love to do it because it would be very tempting <laughs> to get a lot of attention around them, but we actually are not convinced it's the right thing for the end investors. We think actually the separately managed account is a much more effective way to do that. How have you thought about the decision-making of whether to expand into alternatives. When you're on the management committee and you're thinking about long-term strategy and strategic response to change and demands, we're constantly talking about what we should be doing, but also what we shouldn't be doing. And alternatives has been on our conversation list for at least 15 years. So whether it was getting into the hedge fund business, whether it's even thinking about private equity, even putting private equity inside our portfolios today, we still come back to the end investor. The intermediaries might love it because it might be a great product that could gain some traction, 
But it really still comes back to not spreading ourselves too thin and to ensure that we really believe that the end investor is going to benefit in our products with an alternative asset class. We have expanded over the years. We've got global real estate. We've got global infrastructure. We've got strategies like that that we're very comfortable, especially from a bottom-up research perspective. It's more some of the other areas that I think we feel would stretch us probably too thin in terms of the excellence that we expect in doing it in the liquid markets. As you're looking out over the next cycle, so say seven to 10 years in your parlance, what are the trends that are presenting the most exciting opportunities and the most pressing risks? The most exciting to me is that ESG will go away. It will not be an investment term in three years, and it has nothing to do with it not being super important. What the world is going to wake up to and is waking up to now is we are redefining what long-term active management is and should be and should always be. It's to understand and evaluate investment risks that are material to the underlying businesses that you own with other people's money. And you have to do that incredibly well. And so for us, we hope this narrative, this political silliness around ESG, it just dies away and people realize, oh, I need to really know what I own. I really need to engage with these businesses. I really need to commit capital longer to really create incredible value, not only for the end investors, but the entire capital market structure. To me, that's where I get the most passionate and excited about because I think for us, that's what we we are just in such a unique position to do that extraordinarily well. And then investors want you to engage. That's what we do. That's the heart and soul of engagement with companies to make those companies better in the future. And so I think we're at the cusp of really witnessing that. And I think we're also witnessing the limitations of passive capital. And I think that will evolve. It's not that passive goes away. I just think everybody's going to have to become more active. And then I think the biggest risks is that we don't step into leadership. Right now is not the time to follow the herd. People don't pay us to be late. People pay us for counter-cyclical skill and high convictions over long periods of time because we've done the homework. People do not pay us to be pro-cyclical and chase the herd and chase everything else. And we would say the same thing in terms of managing our business. We're gonna focus on what we can control, we are going to continue to have a long-term view, and we are going to be centered on creating value responsibly. I'd love to ask on this demise of the ESG label. Under this lens of investing for long-term responsibility, how do you filter in the E and the S? I think the G kind of takes care of itself. How does the team filter that into their investment decisions? Yeah, I mean, the first premise is the fact that if you're holding a security, not just for price discovery or sort of a trading strategy, you're really focused on owning a company for the essence of its business. And you're doing it not in a short period of time, three to five, five to 10. Many of our managers are like, they wanna hold the company for a long time. That in itself 
tells you that you have to care about a lot of investment risks of that underlining business. So when you think of where we are in the physical state and the materiality of climate change, not just to energy companies, not to coal companies, every single business in the world is dealing with pressure on climate change one way or another. We see it in our own business. We see it in our parent company, Sun Life. How we have to change our business. So that applies to every single company we hold. Now, some of it's much more material to an underlining business and how it's going to impact them in the short term, the medium term, and the long term. But even the pressure from the regulators to respond to climate change is changing public companies, period. So as a long-term investor, we have to implement that process of talking to the companies about this investment risk that we see as being material to their business, or at a minimum, need to evaluate whether it is material or not. And the same thing with the workforce aspect, the pressure of actually being a competitive company in the future and hiring talent, like great, great talent, diverse talent. I don't think it's news to us or anybody that, again, better diverse companies that have more points of view, have a broader reach of opinions, look more like your customers, are going to be more competitive in the future and run better businesses. So that's just part of our evaluation. In really, when we think about rating a stock and rating a company, we're thinking about it for a long period of time, and we're taking into all these factors. It's just like cybersecurity. We didn't have to worry about cybersecurity, but you bet we're going to have those conversations with companies today of how they're managing their cyber risk. So it, that is packed in our global research process. And then as we then rate companies in terms of buy, hold, or sell, all of those models and those evaluations are factored into that research process. And that's how we understand a business. And again, these E, S, and G components, as you say, G has been around for a long time and much easier to measure to a certain extent. But now the data, the risk, the understanding of the risk has become more and more accessible and understandable. And so in evaluating companies today and really looking for disclosure, talking to them about their net zero plan, how they're going to transition, how they're going to respond to regulators and customers, all of that has been built into our integrated process of how we look at E and S. I'd love to hear your perspective as a leader in both the business at MFS and the industry of what leadership means to you and how you instill it onto your teams? I think first and foremost, it has a lot to do with just people trusting you, trust. At the end of the day, are people going to know and believe that I'm gonna do the right thing? And it's clearly for the customer, but also for the employee. It goes hand in hand. And every decision you make sort of has to be around that center of people trusting that you're gonna do that. For us, I think leadership means, though, that you don't do it alone. Great leaders don't do it alone. Because the way you build trust is for people to watch the process of decision-making happen and how you make decisions. And a lot of times, it's making sure you have the right information and that you do your homework and that you really go the extra mile to make sure that you're doing your assessment. 
And as people watch that, to me, that's the best demonstration. And you bring people closer into how difficult decisions are made. It's one of the best ways to demonstrate leadership, both around very, very difficult business decisions, but also even around people. So leadership to me is trust, bringing people close to the process. And ultimately, I think that when you've got a process of decision-making very clear and you don't rely on your own judgment, even though your judgment may be really strong, it's you want to chuck, as I always say, I want to check my story trap. I want to check my unconscious bias or my confirmation bias that's going to get in the way of making a mistake. But at the end of the day, leadership also means that you're going to be willing to take risk. What are the biggest and most exciting risks you're looking to take from here on out? Challenging the industry to change. And that includes us. We're in the industry too. I do think that this is such an incredible time. We have an industry and and our clients and our intermediaries and our trustees and our boards have really, when you think about where the industry today, it's just, it's incredible. It's incredible. There's a million different numbers out there, $130 trillion of investable assets. And and then there's this big intermediation of all of us that are overseeing these assets on behalf of, of investors. And so what excites me is that I like waking up to the idea that we have to keep walking into change. And what are the barriers? What are the structural barriers that has gotten it started to really get in the way of our investment excellence in the industry, our ability to be good stewards? And I have a huge soapbox on that. I travel around the world talking about this all the time. The way we measure performance, it has to change. And some people say, well, that's self-serving as an active manager. No, it's not. Actually, if I don't talk about it, that's the most self-serving thing I can do because I can show up with plenty of products at different times with Alpha. I have no problem doing that. (laughs) (laughs) But that's part of the problem is this idea that we're trying to get Alpha all the time over shorter and shorter periods of time. And ultimately what that does, it doesn't instant the right behavior to commit capital the right way to the underlying companies. We've fed a system to actually incent it to, in a way, not address a lot of the negative externalities that all of this risk has created. And if we don't start to unwind and change that, not unwind it, just really start to realize the structural barriers of it, I think there's huge, huge risks. So what gets me excited is that I'm not the only one having this conversation. I'm seeing asset owners want to, academics want to have it, the CFA wants to have it, our competitors want to have it, but we're afraid, right? We're afraid to change what's worked pretty well. We're afraid to challenge the comfort zones and the status quo. I'm calling it playing a bigger game. And we're working on it ourselves at MFS. And it's really about getting out of your comfort zones and moving into thinking about new allies that you didn't have in the past, new investments that you hadn't even thought of making, and getting to bold action. And what does that look like? What else needs to change in order to play a bigger game? Well, I think we're all working on certainly DEI. I think the whole idea of just continuing to bring more great minds into the industry that have diverse thoughts and are diverse candidates and come from diverse backgrounds. I think that in itself is going to be incredibly powerful to the next evolution of the industry. I think 
the idea of partnership, when we think about the investment chain between the end investor and the public company, we all put a lot of pressure on wanting public companies and private companies to change and do better and transform and and reduce their carbon footprint and have more diverse workforces. And it's all this pressure we want public companies to do while also generating returns. And that's why I say our behavior as an industry actually needs to realize we're the ones that influence a lot of that behavior. So how do we put that might to work in a way that makes our industry sustainable for the next 100 years? And other things that have to change, again, how are we packaging up investment research? I think there's a lot of talk about personalization. And I'm a little skeptical on that because, again, I'm not sure that's actually It sounds good and it sounds like it's about the customer. I'm not sure that's actually what the customer needs. I think it's a variation of it, but I think we have to make sure we don't commercialize it in a way that makes things more confusing. Well, Carol, I wanna ask you a couple of fun closing questions before I let you go. What's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? For me, it's being outside, you name it. I do ride horses, so that's a big one. Being on a bike, going on a hike, just being outside. What's your biggest pet peeve? Biggest pet peeve would be looking at the glass half empty. Not giving people the benefit of the doubt. It drives me crazy. How about on the investment side, your biggest investment pet peeve? Short-termism. I had a feeling that'd be your answer. (laughs) (laughs) Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? Well, it's pretty easy. I mean, the former CEO, Rob Manning, and the current CEO, Micro Bears, they've given me so much opportunity and chance. And, you know, again, when I think of, yes, I'm a woman in the industry, but all of that happened even before people started talking about DEI. I started as pretty much a kid here as a woman with my last name, Rodriguez, and my resume did not look like I should be in this business. And every shot along the way, I had great leaders like the both of them. What type of investment do you gravitate to like a moth to the flame? Things that need fixing. (laughs) 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 Something that's maybe undervalued or just, you know, looks like the bones are there, but, you know, just needs work. Great. All right, Carol, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? It's not a straight line, but I wouldn't have been able to learn that if I knew it earlier. (laughs) 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 But I tell a lot of young people that perfection is my least favorite word. It's this idea that it's going to be all fine. It's going to all be a straight line. It's all supposed to look a certain way, and it's just not. Well, after multiple decades at MFS, it's refreshing to hear that it hasn't been such a straight line, and yet you've been so loyal and persistent along the way. So, Carol, really appreciate you sharing the story. Yes, Ted, thanks so much for the opportunity. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this Sponsored Insight. Sponsored episodes are paid opportunities for another 12 managers a year to appear on the podcast. If you're interested in telling your story in front of the largest audience of investors in the industry, please email us at team at to apply for one of the slots.